Hipster or your self-checkout with the scanner, there was a blue wooden box. Yeah. Looked uh, not extremely uh, tech techy, and the checking out your goods was basically starting off, then putting item by item into that box. All right. Uh, and no, uh, like. Um, Streckcode, no, so no barcode, no, no yeah. barcode scanning, mm. no uh, RFID chips or or anything like that. It was basically just looking at what kind of product is this, and right. then I put stuff in one by one. It nailed each one, right. uh, and and then just check out, blip your phone, and then then you're done. Mm. And it was such a an easy experience from left to right, basically that. I felt the machine learning and the AI and computer vision in this case really entered everyday life um, without being that whole insights and person in the loop and, and so on. And really just becoming a, an easy part of your life. It's nice to see uh, some companies are starting to catch up with Amazon as well and the you know big tech giants that we have in the world. Have you heard about these Amazon Go stores that they have? Yeah, and, and I think that that's a bit of a... That is what I had expected yeah. when computer vision came in checkout. Right. Uh, when it came to Sweden, was the big tech thing. Now we're going to do a computer vision store and mm. and and so on. It just becomes a tech brag project. Yeah. This was completely. I mean, there there were no signs or anything. It was just a a checkout, a a blue wooden box to put stuff so, in. So it it was the next generation POS. Yeah. Point of sale systems the way it should be. Yes, and and the experience is quite seamless. It's convenient, and all this that is sort of all of a sudden ML in everyday life. Yeah, and I think another key topic here is like it's not a project that has anything to do with analytics. It's hardcore operational, like part of the checkout process. Yeah, definitely, really close to the customer. Not 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 someone getting brilliant insights to act upon but no. rather just a part of the operational business process and do you, do you remember when this was you said it like a couple of weeks ago so yeah. we used Houston, and it was which one was it it was the one in Molo Scandinavia ah that one and I need I, to go I there have, <laughs> I, I have no idea how long they've had it because uh, I mean I've been cooped out cooped <laughs> up in my house for a year now so all right very cool topic to start getting to know each other, but let's go into the real introduction of uh, our guest today, uh, Olof Granberg, you know, data analytics, head of data analytics in um, IKEA. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's start there. Who is uh, Olof Granberg? Um, well, Olo, so Olof Granberg, I uh, am the head of uh, data analytics at IKEA Group. So I support all of our companies, um, Ica Bank, Ica Sweden, uh, Apotegerta, Dreaming in the Baltics, and, and so on. And what, um, what I do there is basically lead our data engineering and our common platforms uh, for analytics. I uh, come from a quite a long developer, developer and architect background. I started off as a... Well, actually, as a mobile engineer, I was tailored to work at Ericsson, and uh, I have never worked uh, with cell phones in my life. But uh, because, yeah, you know what happened to Ericsson uh, back in the 2000s, it did not go great. 
but I quite early in my career fell into analytics, I would say. Being a consultant at a big firm, you kind of get assigned to stuff. And I got assigned to a few things until I ended up in a data warehouse replacement project. And that was where I started to really feel that what I did mattered and that I felt that this is this is where I'm supposed to be, working with data, nice. bringing data into the business, seeing what the business needs to understand and know. And just to unpack what you just said, so data warehouse, uh, what do you mean with that? A lot of people have different opinions on what that really means, but can you just, in that specific case, what did it mean? Well, that? In, 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 that, in this specific, and this is 16 years ago, so it mm. was a proper old school <laughs> Ralph Kimball uh, dimensional model Star warehouse. Yeah. Yes. With all of the trimmings. Uh, so, uh, what tech, you have to ask. In oh, 2016, this is fun. So 2006, it was actually uh, DB2 database oh, yeah. and data IBM. stage. IBM. Yes, IBM, yeah. IBM DB2 data stage. It was uh, MicroStrategy as a reporting tool. Interesting. Ah. And uh, so it, it was proper old school data warehousing. And um, but you had like star schemas and fact tables and these kind of things. Yes. So yes. all of the dimensional modeling, uh, surrogate keys. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, the classical Kimball uh, methodology. And I actually haven't left the analytics space since. And mm. um, but the analytics space has, has of course evolved. I mean, I, I worked as a consultant for a number of years before I joined Ica Sweden back in 2010 and worked there for a number of years within within that analytics space. And um, what really changed, um, so, so I would say up until, um, until and at the time I worked at ICA Sweden, I kind of d- dug deeper and deeper into that whole uh, analytics, uh, more classical an- analytics and uh, and seeing how you can benefit uh, or help the business using that. Um, but that changed. How, how do you define classical analytics then? What so that so then I think it's a topic in its own. Yeah, but still, I think you could just give a quick Yeah, yeah The quick one for, for me is the, I mean, the data warehouse where you ETL the data in. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, you build some form of dashboard and, and insights. Um, they can be IT built or self-service, but it's still that kind of, Getting the data in, cleaning it, making it um, um, step by step, knowing exactly what you want to do before you start working. And for BI purposes, so to speak. Yeah, or, BI. Uh, mm-hmm. some Reporting of, tools or yeah, self-service re- tools comes I mean, it, it can here. be some visualization tools like Tableau or Click or, or, and things like that as well. But the majority of the data comes from an extremely clean um, model. You've done a lot of prep on the data before. Mm. Um, Many layers. Many, (laughs) many layers, many. um, So, I mean, you end up, normally end up with data that has a very good quality. You know a lot about data. However, the pace around that implementation is not, it's not very fast. I mean, since there are so many steps, there are so many, so many things you need to sort out on the way that takes. Yeah. Uh, and then when, 
good. Uh, and um, but th- for me, that really changed uh, back in 2015 when I uh, joined Telia on their whole data lake. What, what, what was at the time referred to big data journey. Mm. Uh, thankfully, we, we've gotten away from that big data term and, and just talk data nowadays. Mm. Um, but you mentioned a new term, uh, perhaps a quick introduction to that as well. So data lake in, in Telia's case, what did that mean at that time? So data lake at the time was um, using the Hadoop stack mm. uh, to uh, bring in really massive amounts of data. Um, to and then process that, build insights. Uh, in, in that case, we built a lot of machine learning models uh, and created insights and, and products with that. Was this the time where you were working with Fredrik Buckner and, and yes. a couple of other guys? Yeah, so yeah. Fredrik Buckner, Magnus Dahlbeck, uh, Niklas Hedeberg, yes. Johan Wallin. And what was the journey? So you left, so you were in Ica and then you left and went to Telia for a mm. while. And that, that was when the when data lakes and, and Hadoop and those things had become not exactly mainstream, but at, at least a uh, a common topic in a lot of the larger companies in Sweden. So, so not early adopters, but early majority, maybe something yeah, like may, this. something like that. So it, it wasn't cutting edge, but it was still uh, the things that you could do with it were was really pushing the needle. And a few things that were a lot of things that have really changed who I am today uh, professionally came from that period Mm. uh, because we went from that whole classical structuring everything uh, really well into more of a um, prototyping, having that very, very iterative mindset, working with getting data dumps into the uh, the data lake, working with the data, and then finding out exactly how you wanted to build um, your analytical models, what data you need, exactly how you want the data and so on. Then going back and building the production ready data pipelines with all of the error checking and so on. So this is because we are talking about that you, you experienced a new tech stack to some degree, but you're also highlighting here going to more hypothesis-driven methods, going to yes. agile, more agile, iterative methods. Yeah, definitely. So would you argue that when you've been working in the data warehouse space, the, the early days, it was more traditional planned, well-planned project management, sort of waterfall. Uh, and then with these new technologies, but that's not the only part of this paradigm shift. It's also the hypothesis-driven approach. Yeah. Would that and, be... Uh, Absolutely. And I think that also came, the, the technology came with mm. possibilities to work like this with sandboxes, with isolated environments. Even though you were on-prem, you got some of the uh, the things you get from a cloud stack today. Mm. Uh, at least not, not as easy or as smooth, but on a, you could build some of those concepts easier on, on that tech stack. And you didn't um you don't have to think of everything as being perfect to go into production you can rather put things more isolated mm. um and then really try things out learn go back redo it learn go back redo it and and so on 
And and at this early time, which I think it still is in the in the for the early majority around big data and data lakes, what was the use cases that you were working on, or was it a lot of data and, and data, or was it analytics, machine learning as well, or what was it that you were using the data lake I for? I think from the start it was um, very explorative. Uh, fi- u- utilizing data that was so large that they hadn't been able to work with it before. Mm. Um, things like network events and, mm. and, and things like that are extremely, create a lot of data. And being able to work with the, those amounts of data, you cannot do that in the older stacks that, that was used before Hadoop became mainstream, and now we have completely different stacks, but at the time. Um, so, first of all, very explorative, and then quite quickly into the machine learning, building those kind of models to do more, uh, create operational insights, create um, uh, recommendations on on uh, what to do in the... So was this in the Telia times, or when you actually came... Uh, this was still in the Taylor times. Um, okay. And you still had on-premise clusters then, or did you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, give some example for some machine learning project that um, you can just mention that you were especially, or yeah, you see extra interesting in some way? Well, um, now I just have to think about what, <laughs> what <laughs> this is. you're always back in the, well, this was my old employer and so on, but um so I think that TLA has done a lot of interesting things uh, within the analytics space. Um, one of the projects that is uh, that has been in the news mm-hmm. uh, that um, it's perfectly fine to say you can't speak about every product, of course. Yeah, but but, I, but, I, but I, 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 and I, I was involved in in the early days because this <laughs> was in the news just. Um, uh, just recently, during yeah. the pandemic, Kristoffer uh, Ågren uh, from, from Tele has been in the news several times talking about crowd insights and yes. where they helped uh, Folkhälsomyndigheten just l- look at how people are moving, how that has shifted during the pandemic back and forth from being extreme people before moving around a lot to moving very little and then that going in waves, and that kind of product you c- you could build. Um, I think this was the first time that you could actually build those kind of. So you had something. Products. I mean, like Christopher Ogring has done this in even into a commercial yes. service today with the Tela Division X. Yeah. And but you had the, the the first steps to be able to do that and understand that on internal basis in Telia was taken around 2015, I guess. That's what you're saying. Or oh, 16 uh, or... Yeah, well, at least during the, the time I was there. But, yeah. but uh, I mean, we were working on the data uh, underneath and, and yes. so on quite a bit. And yeah, yeah. continue. And then uh, three years ago, almost exactly, I uh, rejoined IKEA. Not, but not on IKEA Sweden, but rather on IKEA Group. And uh, what was that story? How, how did that happen? Well, it actually happened that one of my old friends from from the Ica time um, actually called me up and said, um, "No, it is that there 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 is actually a better story behind this because I was in the market for a new camera 
<laughs> and uh, I, I was surfing Blocket for, uh, I knew what camera I wanted. So I was surfing Blocket for used cameras. I'm a small camera nerd, so I'm Okay, so it was a uh, Canon 5D Mark mm. Full frame, full frame, yeah. yeah. Full frame. Um, so I was in the market for that, and all of a sudden, uh, an ad, uh, one of the the listings on Blocket pops up, and I recognize the seller's name. Yeah, an old colleague. An old colleague. Uh, so I call him up and say, "Hi, you're selling a camera." He was like, "Yes," and th- then uh, and I was like, "Yeah, let me buy it." And he, yeah, fine, come over. And then when I was over and looking at the camera and all of the stuff that came with it. Um, we started talking about what's happening at Ica and what they were doing. And uh, we kind of got in, okay, let's, that's an interesting discussion. How would you take that data-driven transformation that well, at the time it was a lot around, also there around big data, machine learning. How would you take that, make it more mainstream and really put that into the business? And... The further we got into that uh, discussion, the more interesting it became. And then that discussion at his house became a discussion at, uh, at yes. Ica together with my current manager. And, and here we are. Here we are. And, and wh- how would you say the main difference is to work at group level today versus when you were in Ica Sweden? The, I would say it's a bit of a shift on... Um, who I see, uh, who, who I support. So um, in, in, many, in many ways, um, I would say we work in a uh, spectrum of what we actually offer. So for, for some of our opcos, uh, or sorry, some of our companies, um, we do actually do the delivery for them. So we, we build use cases and we, we, we build the data pipelines and so on. Then we are quite close to the business and helping the business out. Uh, in other cases, we are supporting the analytics teams uh, at, out at the companies. And then we have a different mindset on, on the level that we, when they succeed, we succeed. So our job is basically helping them do their job. So when they can build uh, their data pipelines, when they can build their models as easy as possible, then, then we've done our job right. So does that mean that you, for one, share like uh, competence or people and can go out and help them? Does it also mean that you share the infrastructure or, or what does it mean? Or how does the, the group level kind of organization support the different? So we help uh, them out in, in, in uh, a few different ways. Um, in, in some sense, yes. I mean, if they want us to come out and, and build and, and, and help out with actually building things, then definitely. Uh, but we also help them uh, with uh, supplying them with uh, platforms, how to work with the platforms, uh, support around it. Um, so we, 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 we try to create group-wide platforms that everyone can use so that when we add, uh, when we add things, uh, when we make improvements, everyone gets, a, gets the same improvement. Oh, we can go down a rabbit hole here. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, like, maybe we should do it. I mean, like, f- I, I think like this, uh, I'm, before we go into the rabbit holes on architecture and platform and even 
talking about data mesh and topics yep. like this. Um, would be very curious to understand how you are organized, you know, group level towards the different ones. You, you sort of, you, you were coming into this topic now, but then it's quite interesting to understand how you have looked at sort of organization, responsibilities, mandates in order to do your job in the best possible way, the way you described it. And I think that the, and this is where we need to come back to that whole spectra thing. Yes. Um, okay. I will take that. We'll take that question soon. Yeah. But the, uh, and I mean, we have a, I would say fairly classical organization where we have divided between business and IT. Mm -hmm. On the IT side, we have the engineering, be it data engineering and platform engineering. Uh, and on the business side, we have the analytics people with data scientists and uh, analysts and so on. What, and I mean, you can always have viewpoints. Is this the most optimal way to do it? Uh, shouldn't people sit in this, in the same organization? But for us, it's most important that people work together, mm. not who they report to. So we kind of, we, we form virtual teams. And when we pick up a case, we have people working together, um, data scientists, data engineer, uh, the platform engineers when they're needed and so on. And um, is this uh, specifically within the ICA group or is it you know, meaning completely in the whole like organization as a whole, so to speak? Uh, I would say but it differs between the different companies, uh, yeah. but, but on the ICA group level, that's how we are working. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and the difference has that got to do with the maturity of the different parts of the organization mainly, or it has to do with the, the type of use cases they have, or I would say size and maturity, size and and maturity. How, 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 how long they've worked, yeah. been, how, been doing their data driven journey themselves. Yeah. Uh, and also the size of organization, mm. um, at some point you need the critical mass in order to have a data engineering and a data science team. Mm. Uh, we do a lot of work with our real estate company and mm. the um, organizational wise, they're not big. Uh, mm. They're doing a lot of, uh, a lot of things with very few people. And which means that it doesn't really make sense for them to have a full data engineering teams themselves. It's easier for them to come to us. But I think this is important now because we are talking about uh, how to organize what what needs to be central, what needs to be local or embedded. We can call it hub and spoke. We can call it many things. But you also mentioned something very important here, which I think is you used the word virtual organization. So so it's not so easy to draw the perfect organizational map. You need to have different approaches depending on exactly this. What is you know, cost relevant, you know, size, maturity. So the many things that it's sort of situational that you need to play yeah. into. Would you, I mean, like I'm trying to summarize and put my own spin on this. Yeah. And, and I, I very much uh, agree with that is doing an organizational change takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of change, both from the people working. Uh, I mean, if you as a person get reorganized, you, all of a sudden you have a new manager, you belong to a new uh, organization. That takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, there are a lot of legal stuff you have to go through uh, and so on. Uh, when you work with virtual teams, you're not really changing managers, you're not changing who you're reporting to, but you have a lot of better agility on 
um, on finding out how you actually want to work. Would you say virtual team is a core part of how Ika works, that, that mindset, or is it something that comes with your territory? I think it comes with, um, in some sense, it comes with Ika. Um, we have, um, I would say yes and no, it, 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 it's not a core part. We don't have the same model exactly everywhere. Um, but just elaborate a bit more. What What is really a virtual team? Does it mean that it's um, much more dynamic in terms of time and people that can work with it? Or how would you define a virtual team compared to the normal kind of organization you have otherwise? So, um, I mean, just to, t- to take a practical yes, example, um, say that we run three different use cases at the same time mm-hmm. um, that all use at least one data scientist, at least one data engineer and some business people. The business people are normally allocated to that particular use case, probably not full time. Uh, It's always hard to get uh, business people full time. Um, So they are divided by each team. For the other teams, um, normally, ideally, you could just form that team, work, full-time for a number of weeks, and then you're done. You can just move on to the next uh, use case. Uh, in practicality, that's seldom the case. Uh, and, and I think this is a uh, very different if you work on a standalone product somewhere where you, you're in control of the whole end-to-end. But if when you work within analytics, it's very often that you have four, five, six um, data sources, and then you're dependent on their planning. Uh, if you're using centralized integration engines, you're, uh, you're uh, depending on that planning. Uh, when it comes to you're actually building your analytics and your machine learning models, and then the output is supposed to go into an executing system, then you're dependent on that development. Um, that... In, in reality, and, and we haven't even gone into the whole data governance, data protection, things you need to take into consideration where you need to uh, find out what is the data we, are, we need, what are we going to do with the data, what are, are we allowed to do this with the data, Does it in, are we following our data protection uh, promise that we give to our customers, um, and, and, and so on and so on. Uh, all of this leads to that you're going to spend a lot of calendar time on building something. Even though within the actual development team, you could do it in in, in a few sprints. Mm. Uh, but the whole setting up, doing the design, having all of the discussions back and forth, that, I mean, that all draws out in calendar time. So with that said, coming back to the virtual teams, then uh, it's hard to fully, uh, well, obviously, depending on the size of, of the project you're doing, but it's hard to maybe fully dedicate a full team to each use case. Um, that means that we, um, we normally have people working with several use cases at the same time because you will get, you will get pauses. You will get things that take calendar time. 
So, so, so virtual teams is about being able to to be a little more flexible on, on when it has when you have a heavy workload versus a light workload, and it, and I also hear a little bit like the virtual team is pulling together the cross functional capabilities yes. just in time. Depending now, we need to really dig down into this uh, data governance topic, privacy topic. Now is the engineering stuff. So it's a little bit like use case lifecycle oriented, yeah. uh, something like this. And and then virtual, I also get it that big difference is that we have we we are not organized under one boss, so to speak. So we are pulling in the data governance guy from one boss, but we are pulling in data engineers from another yeah. Yeah, line organization. Correct. Okay. Correct. And yeah. um, and I mean this is. Part, part of why we're organizing like that is that we are supporting a very, very large organization. Mm. Uh, if you were to have, if you were at another company where you you would have a larger mass of people working, then then it's uh, easier to allocate a, and build domain teams, mm. saying people that work with logistics, for instance. I mean, that's easier when you have the larger mass there. Yeah, but for us, we're quite a lean organization. We are supporting a lot of different business units. And and what what are the pros and cons with what you're doing today? And 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 are you looking towards domain or you know value data value chain organization style or you know are you feeling there are always pros and cons, right? So what's the pains and the positives with what you're doing now? So the uh, I mean the positive side is that we are supporting a lot of different business mm -hmm. functions. Mm. Uh, across multiple companies with, with a lean company with, with quite a lean organization um, the drawback of course is that uh, is if you compare it to a domain team as a domain team you get to learn the data often quite well you get to learn the, the business use really cases, well yeah. use cases you, you have that whole history of uh, and not forgetting uh, building the whole team around it. Um, we have really good collaboration between data engineers, data scientists, and so on. But when you bring the business people into it, it becomes a new team exactly. and you need to form that. Uh, so th that's obviously a good, um, a positive side when working with domain teams or value uh, chain teams or however, but just having that static team. Uh, is that you learn from each other, you and you can kind of deepen that relationship. Can you just you said a number of different types of teams now. So <clears throat> for one, you have you know some kind of boss. Perhaps you can call it a line reporting team or something. Yes. Then you have the virtual teams, and then you have domain teams. Um, so if we speak about the domain team, is that basically where people are more of the same type of competence or skills? Uh, together, or can you just try to elaborate? You know, what are the differences between these three so, teams? So, um, normally, um, so the, the different teams. Uh, first of all, you have like the, the organizational team, yeah, people team, reporting yeah. to one one manager. Those are um, often com competence based. Yep. Similar type of skills. Yeah, data engineers, data scientists, platform engineers, and and. And so on. Uh, when it comes to the domain teams, that's more focused towards a business domain. So business problem. Yeah, or yeah, business problem. Or logistics business, uh, or point. Is is that what we mean with the domain? Business yes. domain. Yeah, business domain. So yeah, like you said, logistics, online, um, 
So a person management belongs to one for one the reporting team. Can he also belong to a certain domain team then? And thirdly, to a virtual team as well, or how does it work? Well, for us, it's uh, it's it, yes, it is a bit like that. So uh, it's a bit that as a data engineer, you have one reporting manager, yeah. and then um, when we run use cases, they belong to that use case team. Um, and then you have a sponsor the, who has the business need for yes. something. And the exactly. use case team is the virtual team, right? Yeah, the use case team is the virtual team. And um, many, many times that uh, virtual team can get recreated when something new pops up and so on. Right. Yeah, and uh, my argument could be like sometimes then you get into one of the more mature organization where these use cases now has started to mature. So we actually have things in production and they and th- that the virtual team starts stabilizing into a more stable domain team. So then, the, then this is a little bit like who's, you know, then maybe you have still your um, competence, discipline, ownership one way, but you are, have been more stable over time working with your virtual team until it becomes a, a sort of a solid domain team that yeah. I have a, data, a cross-functional team with data engineers and everyone, and now we, we are hardcore logistics fans or something like this. Is that something like this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, for us, we normally mix quite, uh, or rather for us, the the number of use cases we're doing is so varied that Mm. um, it's it's hard to really solidify that kind of virtual team because we do so many different things. But that kind of leads us, I mean, like there there are many trajectories here. I'll give you a couple. I would love to explore the different use cases that Ika has because I can really understand a huge spectrum from customer to supply chain and logistics. This is one topic. Uh, the other topic is, of course, to uh, go in and explore, you know, what's your current tech stack and stuff like that. And then, of course, we had the whole topic of this holistic model, how this all fits together that I think you you said, that ah, this is a pain. Someone should get it done. But maybe we should start with the use cases because it's okay, yeah, one follow-up question before we okay. move to that. Mm. So, yeah, so, you know, you can do a lot of things uh, at the company, and um, you mentioned a number of times like you, you have a number of pipelines that you need to build, and you have applications you need to build and, and use cases to to yeah uh, support in some way. Would you say how the virtual team, I guess, is is more of a cross-functional team that tries to support it more and more and more and to end or less or more to end to end. But how far does it go? For for people building a pipeline, sometimes they have their own team to just, you know, I'm only going to support having this pipeline running here and now, and then potentially have a number of consumers for that pipeline. How how do you usually do it? Is the pipeline part of the virtual team or is that separate? The so the pipeline is part of the virtual team. Yeah. Um we normally, um, and you, you also have to look at it from, from, I mean, during the initial implementation, putting things into production and that you normally do during a number of times during the implementation of a use case. Mm. Um, but then you also have to look at the afterlife after you've now we're happy. Now we're going to go just reap the business benefits for a while until we come back and, and, and improve it. 
So do you scale down the virtual team then to yes. more have a DevOps kind of organization? And I think that, that that's one of the strengths we have yeah, right. is that we have since we have that central competence team and mm. uh, when that uh, when that use case scales down the people return home, so to say. Right. And so then we have other use cases and so on. Yeah. But but you have use cases where we, we end up with a with a production pipeline or algorithms in production. So you yeah. need to continue then, maybe even more developers, but then you need to scale it to maintenance and operations and improvement yes. teams, so to speak. Yeah. But, but uh, Norm, I mean, it's the same competence team. Yes. We, we do not... Uh, Everything we develop, we we run. Yeah, we don't hand, hand anything. Over. No, That's we don't hand question. anything off to someone no. else. But it, but it's the difference to really you need to ramp it up to get it down in on deadline, and then you yeah. end up on a stable level. Yeah, I'm not cool. like that. You actually do not hand it over to some other team that is you know handling the operation, but you actually do have the full like ownership of of that use case, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. good too. I think I, th- I think if you think about it, the more complex it gets. You build it, you run it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Good. Uh, All right. Um, Let's go into the next topic that is sort of adjacent to this. We have used the word use cases anymore, but so what are the, what are the real problems that you're solving or that you're, you're trying to work on? What, what is your key focus area that you think can make a huge impact for IKEA group? So I think IKEA has a, uh, I mean, IKEA has a vision to make every day a little easier. For mm. our customers, and is that the formal mission, mission of Varje dag lite enklare. So, so, it, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I've seen that. So it's. Uh, I mean, it's in Swedish, and I would roughly translate it to just every day a little bit easier. Yeah, I love it. It's an awesome mission, I think. And I agree. I think I think it is really good, and I think it 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 sets a it sets a good priority for what should we do. Um, it's not about maximizing profits, even though that's, of course, a, a since, since, since we are a, a um, we are a company, of course, uh, that, that is an important. But the customer centric mission, what you think will drive customer excellence? Yes, and 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 really bring customer value. Mm. So I mean, the, it it sets the belief that when our customers are happy and have an easy life then they will be happy with us and then they will stay with us. Yeah. Uh, so something that, that, I mean, that, that is really what we want to fulfill. So we do things around the customer. We try to make their lives easier. So the whole customer journey inside the store and et cetera, like this becomes... I mean, it's super- very similar to Spotify. I mean, they put the user experience before anything else, before, you know, prof- profit or whatnot, because they know in the long term, that is really what will pay off. Yeah. Uh, it's the same for you. And, it's right. and and what is the customer journey or, or customer experience in Ica now? I mean, like you have physical stores, you have digital stores, you have many different parts of it, of, of course. And that, that makes it uh, extremely interesting exactly. in, in my mind because uh, Ica has been around for over a hundred years mm. and um, come from a brick and mortar uh, store extremely non-digital from the start and just bringing that first of all that user experience online being in a store where you feel welcome where you feel like it's a personal store 
Uh, one of Ica's big strengths is that all of our uh, store owners, they run their own business. They run their own store. They decide what to do in the store. And they pride themselves on getting to know their customers and working close to their customers. And uh, trying to bring that feeling online. Interesting. That uh, as a person, when I come in, it's not just... Um, I'm not hun- I'm not uh, shopping on just ika.se. I mean it it is, it is of course ika.se, but then you're kind of you you need to get that feeling that well I'm welcome. This is tailored to me. Ika knows who I am. They know what I want. They know what I want to have, and and so on. So I think that user experience is extremely important. And for me, in my mind, also it's it's about simplifying. And when that comes to food shopping, for instance, uh, for me, you can divide it into two parts. Uh, I love to go food shopping. My wife does not. Um, <laughs> That's weird. Or usually <laughs> the opposite. Or, I don't know. Uh, and I usually divide it into two parts. One, one is gray shopping, which is basic. All of the stuff that we always buy, we yeah. always need. You need... You need uh, basics. Yeah, you need the basics. You need bread, you need milk, you need yeah. that kind of stuff. And that should be fast. And that should be fast, right? easy. The brand of milk I buy doesn't change. Not because I absolutely love a particular brand of milk. It's just Happy. I need milk. And But then, then there, there are a number of things that I really enjoy shopping. Um, fruits and vegetables. Uh, that are seasonal, where you can really see now the, uh, for instance, now it's apple season. So that's a lot of fun going, just browsing what kind of apples there are in the store and so on. And then uh, buying meat, buying thi- things mm-hmm. like that, that are a bit more where you, that you really interest. feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, high interest things. Yeah. And what you then can bring into the user experience and make a customer's lives uh, easier is that whole, okay, this is what you normally buy. Would you like to put that in a basket? Yes, please. Yes. Now we're done. With yeah, that now we're done seconds. with that. Let's go, let's go come into the, the things that are fun. Yeah. Uh, so, so these are, these are the new, this is what's seasonal right now. This is what's really good right now. Now we've gotten this, uh, uh, we've brought in this particular farm here in Uppland that has these cows. Uh, and so on. So bringing that whole extra part that's fun mm-hmm. with food. So how do you do that? How do you make yeah, that experience easy? How, how do you make people find the low interest kind of goods in a quick and efficient way? And, and how do you make people find you know high interest goods that are less common, so to speak? And, and I think that that's where the whole uh, recommendations and, and those kind of things that are data driven and then and that our customer tailored comes in. Uh, and and uh, can you speak about any specific recommender system that you are using today, or how it works, or from a uh, more technical point of view, perhaps? I'm not sure if I can. And uh, I mean, we've built, uh, we have built our own, or mm-hmm. that the team that builds the recommendations engine have built their own mm-hmm. and have worked with it a long time and are getting, in my opinion, really good at it. Um, Do you know if it's more content based or it's collaborative filtering based or a hybrid of the two? Or I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to answer that. Ah, okay. 
but yeah, but but um, trying to just getting that kind of um, uh, content in in an easy manner to to the customers, and then of course uh, getting getting back to the customer experience, um, you want to bring the nice parts about being in a store, which is you kind of see uh, see the product you you you. you you get that visual experience when you shop food. Um, bringing that to the customer as well as the whole ease of being online, being able to search and sort and 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 bring things that are um, that you would probably like to to the forefront for the customer and making just that whole easy. And do you have any? data or analytical use operational use cases coming into the brick and mortar store. I mean, like we talked, it, we took the Decathlon example is quite cool, but yeah. I, I don't know how to do but, that. But with before we leave the recommender system, and of course you need to collect data <clears throat> to be able to build a recommender system, whichever technique you are using. And, and then the technique can be, you know, they clicked on something, they bought something. Um, or it can be more, this is the product, or this is the, the image of it, or this is the text describing it, or whatnot. But it could also be like review-based, or so many things <clears throat> that you can use to try to understand what the user actually do like and do not yeah. like. But then you get also into some legal issues sometimes, and GDPR kind of issues, and etc. What's your... Can you mention anything about you know, how do you handle GDPR and data that is collected about users in IKEA? So for us, we took the whole GDPR thing quite yeah. seriously yeah. and and have worked extensively with it. Yeah. Um, we when we come to recommendations and so on, we work with only of our our I, customers that have chosen to identify themselves. Right. So we're not um, we we're, we're not working with customers that that basically haven't opted in uh, quite explicitly. So how many have really opted in, so percentage-wise, you would say? It's been so many years since I heard that figure, but uh, so I don't 5% know. 5% or 90%? No, 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 it's, uh, it's towards the high end. It is more than 50% uh, that opted in? Depends on where, you, I mean, people that uh, draw their ECA card. So yeah, the, the starting point identify. is the ICA card, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, like you have all the people going into the brick and mortar store yeah. that we don't know. And then we start knowing the guys with the uh, ICA code. That's the starting point of yeah. measuring this, the population, I guess. Yes. And then who of the population wants to have tailored services? That's the percentage we're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. But is it? I mean, someone just wants to use the card to be able to pay with it, right? And they don't perhaps realize that they use it use it to personalize the experience. No, but that's right? the point. So first you have the population with the ECA card, and then you ask the guys with, and girls with the ECA card, do you want to have a more tailored experience? That's how I understand it from my own personal uh, Yes. And, and so uh, then you opt in to the tailored part. Is, is that yeah. true? Or do you opt in for just having the card? Good question. Uh, you opt into, of course, when you opt into the card, you opt into uh, being an IKEA customer, being yeah. being a part of the loyalty pro- program, mm-hmm. and then you will get uh, a lot of the. Now I'm thinking about the online tailoring. I'm not 100 percent sure on where, how much you, how much is affected when you opt in and out. Mm. 
Uh, you will get your. I haven't seen a question to opt in for a personalized experience, but I know that is. when uh, GDPR came into effect, there was a lot of stuff sent out and yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and when the whole, the I mean, all of the data protection texts uh, and so on have evolved. Not a hundred percent sure how it is with like toggle buttons. Please yeah. turn off my sorting of yeah. the merchandise and so on. Uh, you do opt in to getting those kind of personalized offers and, and things like that. I'm so, trying so try to think like a consumer now because this is one thing, but then I go into, and I, I, we have bought stuff and on, on Eek Online, right? Mm. So then you, then I think you also register in, in, in the shop as well on top of your card. Like, so you don't, so I can't remember how that was done. So when you shop online at yes. Eek, you have to select the store. Yes. And um, with with that, and then it gets delivered either straight from that store or or that's exactly right. Yeah, I'm eager to go to the whole regulation topic, but perhaps we should um, <laughs> table think, that for now and and uh, yeah, have that as a cliffhanger to yeah, move I, into I, the AI act. But, but I I, I kind of used to want to explore a little bit more. Okay, so these are of course a lot of exciting use cases from the customer and how to create uh, the. ECA mission, both digital and online and, 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 and all that. What other major areas is sort of, you know, operational or logistical or stuff like that, that, that you have? I mean, I think when we are approaching a little bit, uh, it would be fun actually to, to discuss a little bit the retail in general, not only ECA, because I believe it's a paradigm shift and uh, all of those IKEA, uh, ECA, Coop and everybody else that are also focusing all of them on, on how to uh, increase the customer experience in this. So let's uh, take a general approach of the retail, how it needs to be changed instead of delving into a specific company no but I, I think I think it's good I, I think it's very exciting to understand on a, on a concrete level what use cases is there I think we can finish that but then I think to understand where's the trend of retailing mm. that's an yeah. interest that's a good one thank you but but uh, just a couple of you know we now we highlighted the customer part I, I was just curious if you had any other major areas that you're working on so uh, I mean one for instance is that IKEA wants to reduce all of our emissions. Exactly. Uh, we had the goal to become climate neutral, uh, which we did within our own operations. And uh, now we have we set new climate goals on on how how um, little to affect, uh, but also help our customers reduce their carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And so with that comes a lot of uh, finding where are um, not. I mean, normally we found a lot of uh, things like where are we uh, have, where do our bottlenecks financially or delivery wise or, and so that kind of normal operational efficiency that people have done for a long time. But now we're also looking at the climate efficiency and, and seeing things like um, measuring um, energy in the stores. Where where are we consuming the most energy and and so on and how can we, can we do we have stores for instance that use a lot of electricity for their fridges does it make sense to exchange those to something else something newer um, there are I mean those yeah, those open fridges you can have doors on them and and so on so there are a number of things you can do to just reduce that climate footprint and I think that that is something that um 
that's it, that is upcoming. That is extremely interesting. Can you use AI for that? You think to try to optimize? You know how you operate the the features or whatnot? Definitely. I I think. I mean, and depends on how how far you drive the AI term. But I think you can definitely do that. You can you can you can find first of all find all of those um, discrepancies where you have high consumption in in different parts. Uh, but also how you operate things, such as um, maybe temperature in the store mm-hmm. going up and down during the night just right. because you don't have any people there. So automatically regulate the, the temperature and power usage depending on the usage in some way. Yeah, and, and a lot of those systems are already out in, I mean, a lot of modern buildings all, already have oh. that. So, right. uh, But, but uh, you can definitely, I mean... This is a perfect example where you can put data into practice uh, and really put it into operations. I'm just saying it because sometimes if you have you know old type of ventilation systems, they they are very reactive. So first, when you come into a room or a big meeting room which been empty, you know it's it's very uh, cold perhaps, mm-hmm. and and then you. Or, or warm rather, and then you come in and it becomes too warm and it starts to cool it down and then it becomes too cool, too cool. And, and they have, you know, these horrible systems that actually react in a very, you know, reactive way rather yeah. than proactive way. Um, so hopefully, you know, if you have some proper AI in place, you could actually avoid this and predict that, you know, I know beforehand that, you know, at eight o'clock, you know, a lot of people would come into the store and, and, and we should start preparing for that in advance somehow, right? Yeah, I, I very much agree. And I think a lot of now that everyone is returning to their old offices, yeah. everyone is going to be very aware that the first few days, the air is not going to be great in yeah. those buildings. So. Yeah, and, and uh, one of my best friends, uh, Christian Rasmussen at Grundfos, he's working at Innovation Lab at Grundfos around cooling, next generation AI-driven cooling. And I used I think this is cooling topic must be quite major for place like Ica. So I, I can just see how you can optimize the stores and how you can do many, many different things around the environment that will be more sustainable and even more cost effective. So and especially if you do that on Ica group level and then yeah. you know deploy that throughout the stores, I, I guess the the impact of that would I be I need to connect really you with big. Christian. <laughs> because the, uh, it is really because it's funny because I don't so know so much about cooling. And then you have some, a friend who, who goes all into it in, in an innovation lab and he starts, show, you know, giving you white papers on it. And it's just the whole world. And then, and of course, when we talk cooling in, in the other parts of the world, that is a little yeah. bit hotter. This is a huge problem uh, or challenge to yeah. that is actually quite a lot that can be improved. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Very, very interesting. And, and then out. Oh, uh, then I assume we have all the topics with lo- lo- logistics and transport, which is both from an efficiency point of view and, of course, al- ultimately su- sustainability topic as well. Yeah. Perhaps that's a good question to, to just ask, you know, what are the main parts of the whole you know, business of ICA that you try to work with from a more data science point of view? Logistics is one, the operations of stores, the customer experience, the whole life cycle of products, I guess, and avoiding minimizing waste, circular economy and all these kind of things. What do you say that the major part of what you can use data science for in Ica Group is? Um, 
I mean, ultimately, I would say very, very large part of the business, you yeah. can use data science and, yeah. and, and, uh, and make it data driven. Normally, I mean, most companies start somewhere. Mm. And we have had different, uh, and if we also look across the whole ecosystem, including the bank and including our pharmacy and so mm. on, we do have parts that have worked with data a long time. Uh, then you come into that whole machine learning journey um, to really drive those operational decisions even more. Uh, there, uh, I would say, I mean, we've started, we started quite early within the customer loyalty mm. side uh, and have worked a lot with that. Mm. Um, uh, but I think, I mean, now that we are, we have really begun on the journey on taking it wider into the company, we're not really leaving anyone untouched. <laughs> we're, we're trying to really spread that across. Um, then, of course, you need to look at where does it really make sense, right? Uh, in, in some parts, um, in some parts we are using more, um, we are using the full power of, uh, having data engineers, data scientists together with the business on, on our platforms and, and really spending a lot of time in other parts we're use we're doing a lot of automation mm. using automation platforms. Mm. Uh, then we're not going as deep into that whole machine learning journey, but rather using things that get supplied in those platforms, mm. um, such as um, invoice scanning, for instance, mm. or, or uh, just automating um, things a, a person normally would do. Yeah, but but I, I I think this is something that we have talked about a lot, and and in the way to look at any business. Uh, I mean, like it's a little bit like to break down the core business into its core value chain, and then do first principles on it. Uh, we, we you know the word we have used the word first principles here with a lot of guests, and, and talking about mm-hmm. how to really break down the core business model in its in its core fundament, and then rebuild it up maybe to a new business model. But but in one way with data and AI in mind, you know, mm. so how, how can I understand my uh, logistics, you know, or sourcing mm. part of my business chain? How can I understand my uh, transportation part of my business? How can I understand mm. the sorting and assortment part and, and inventory and, and, and turn, you know, turn the stock turnaround? Mm. How can I understand, uh, yeah, the customer experience, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I think that's, of course, you can have data everywhere in these different topics. You, you, you were on to another question that sort of we can lead into here is like, you, you start in somewhere where, you know, and, and typically maybe we have someone who is a little bit mature or you have started and, and I can imagine that you, with your experience and how you now look at IKEA, you can see maybe more use cases that you, oh, we should really do this and this and this and that, but not always do we have maybe the knowledge and know-how what can be done with data and AI from, from experienced business people, but they are not data people. So have you thought anything about that or where's the starting point when you get to that uh, kind of topics? So I, I mean, for us, uh, becoming data driven as a company is mm. more than building use cases. Yes. So it, it's, it's a whole mindset and, and a, a culture 
So for me, that that means that you have spent you have to spend time to do that uh, uh, kind of culture shift into becoming uh, really data driven. And um, in order to get there, you need to spend time with people, uh, and you, you need to understand that at some point uh, uh, it's all down to the people, and then then. Um, to make that kind of culture shift, uh, increase their competence when it's needed, and, and so on. So, I normally I'm, I try to foster uh, and and work a lot with education, and mm. uh, just having that um, whenever we do, whenever you have a presentation, I always try to add some education into all of my presentations, even though it may. Um, it may be a reporting, uh, uh, maybe describing what we've done in a particular project. I always try to sneak some education in. Smart, very um, good. I like it. But we also do more um, more efforts that are like focused efforts, um, creating learning sites, making short films where we describe some different topics um, that are really short, and people can just get. A few minutes, and then then they they can move on. Uh, as well as setting up uh, like an analytics academy and and having more focused um, focused training. But since when when you want training is one thing. Normally, mm-hmm. training is for me. Training is taking a particular role and, and and lifting that competence to a place where you want it to be. Um, and then that can be done by online or by um, seminars or, or or whatever. But when you want to change a whole company, you mm. cannot do you cannot we cannot go out and train each and every employee and have them sit in a classroom uh, because it doesn't make sense. Uh, so then we're down, we're looking at shifting the whole the small things, uh, shifting the mind. Little, little by little, all the time in everyday life, and that also, that means that the whole learning part must be easy. So it must become a part of the conversation, um, and then that means getting people to talk about data, talk about those use cases, talk about um, drive some champions that don't that not only talk about their use cases but also talk about their data. And are passionate about their data and what they can do with that data. Uh, and when you sh- can shift the companies, the talk, uh, I mean, when you can shift the talk in the break room to becoming uh, about data and what you can do with the data, then you've really become data driven as a company. It's, it's, it's so many different angles on this because what we're talking about now is, is enterprise transformation and, 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 uh, to some degree, uh, uh, maybe a pivot. So, I mean, like, so I think we can, can come back a little bit about to where is retail going in, in a data and AI first society? Uh, if we take that sort of frame, wh- wh- where, where are we com- going with retail, both in terms of how we experience what we are doing in retail, but also what the retail organization is all about? What's the core organization? So what's your view on retail? Data and AI. I mean, like taking the trajectory. Where where are we going? Uh, if we use get on this train a bit. Uh, 
I think that, I mean, retail is definitely one of the industries where um, AI and um, that customer focus is really getting adopted. Um, I think we are heading towards a very, very personalized experience. Um, and it's quite interesting because some of the legislation that has been passed is kind of uh, breaking that. Uh, for me, it's in a good way. As a, If I look to myself as a consumer, that um, not all companies, the companies cannot do whatever they like. They cannot track me without me knowing it. At least they're not allowed to, but, um, and, and so on. Um, but with that said, I think that the, uh, with everything becoming, first of all, I think that retail, uh, will try to make everything or should try to make everything easier and easier. So first of all, becoming a customer doesn't only mean that they, they, uh, I get great offers. It should also be extremely easy to shop. Mm. So what about um, the uh, tech giant competition? Uh, Amazon coming to Sweden and uh, starting to simplify the whole shopping experience more and more. Do you the fear, whole logistics. Do you whole, fear the tech giants coming into Sweden? And um, I mean, obviously you need to be aware of them. Um, I'm, I'm not sure for me as, as a, as an individual, I don't fear them as much. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, they, they can definitely become a, a big competitor, uh, if they choose to really go ahead and try to become adopted in Sweden, which I don't think they've really they tried. Started. No, they haven't started. I mean, the, strange, the, the, the launch in Sweden, for sure, extremely but. strange <laughs> launch. Um, but I'm not as worried. I don't think, um, I think that the, the whole marketplace of, uh, approach and so on is, is of course, uh, interesting. I think it will get some adoption and we do have some companies that are working in, the, in that. Isn't it a, a marketplace actually as well? Or? Yes. Yeah. In, 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 in some, uh, in some manners. Yes. But, but is, is the, is the retail ecosystem changing? So, I mean, like, so I work a lot uh, with, with truck manufacturing and mm -hmm. Scania is talking about the transport ecosystem and are trying to understand what, what is our position and what is our role and how do we, you know, are, are we, are we, are we the same animal, so to speak, or our core business model the same? And probably not when we get, get into, so, and, and what is, uh, what is the kind of question that ICAS and the Coops and the uh, needs to consider in this? Are there any shifts here? Okay, we have global giants coming in, but is, are there fundamental shifts in the retail area? I think the, the fundamental shift is the, if there is a fundamental shift, but I think what is becoming more and more important is the customer focus. What mm. do, what does the customer really need? Mm. How can we make the customer's lives really easy? Mm. And, uh, I mean, for Ica, the, the meal part, the whole food part with Ica Sweden be, being the biggest part of the, um, of the business that is of course the center, but then we also have a lot of other things. Uh, we have, I mean, the Ica bank, which is starting uh, or not starting, which is a big player on, on the banking side. We have Apotek Hjertat, which is a, a large pharmacy chain in, in Sweden. And, um, 
And then we have, of course, the real estate to support all of that. But that whole ecosystem and trying to make a customer feel that you, you're getting into the Ica ecosystem, uh, yeah. where, where, f- where food is one thing, but you also get a n- number of other uh, services like Ica, like an insurance and a bank uh, and so on. And trying to just getting that whole feeling uh, work uh, as seamlessly as possible. Because I think that fundamental strategy is something we also see in the banks. And, and the, the, the core topic is we have this customer base and how can we evolve around that this customer base that makes sense? You know, how can we maybe ease your life as a core mission? And then basically, well, if, if you work with Ica, these things start to make sense together. I mean, like you see that in, 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 in many industries, how you sort of try to open up new revenue streams, so to speak, that makes sense for the customer. Mm. That is one part of how you understand, well, Ica went from a pure food uh, store to banks and all that. So I think this is already yeah. happening. Uh, what about uh, Amazon's, underst- I mean, like, I think Amazon is very much driving the verticalization of the whole ecosystem i mean like from the store to the transport to the warehouse and all that yeah. i mean like i don't know Ika well enough to understand are you are you a fully integrated value chain today or are you working uh, with partners you are fairly integrated i think we are fairly integrated and uh, i mean we, we work both exactly drive our own, own drive a lot of our own uh, business and trucks and so on but yeah. we also have partnerships yes you have both yeah, so we have both, uh, and we we try to look at where it makes sense. Yeah, but continue on similar topic, but perhaps moving into a slightly different topic. It would be fun to think about the Corona impact of Ica. Yes, and we can uh, see that, uh, for example, in education, we heard the Minister of Education in Sweden saying, you know, I think it, uh, yeah, last summer, last year, saying these last three months of Corona has transform from a digitalization point of view, the educational system more than the last five years. Yeah. And I guess a big impact must have happened on the retail and Ica as well in terms of Corona and, and food deliveries and, and whatnot. What, what happened during Corona? Can you mention some aspects of what the impact was? So um, Corona uh, had, of course, a huge impact. Um, and I mean, it was first part uh, was when people started buying stuff that didn't make sense. Oh yeah, all the uh, <laughs> all of the toilet paper, toilet paper, paper. <laughs> uh, uh, harvesting that. Yeah, that was weird. Never seen a store in Ica that was out of the toilet paper. It was before. extremely <laughs> weird. And the the toilet paper manufacturers basically went out and said, "Well, I mean, we can't make more right now. It's coming." But, but it's fun. It's so funny. Are we gonna die? What do I need? I really need toilet paper. Mm. <laughs> uh, but then. After, I mean, when things set, when the first chaos kind of settled down, uh, I mean, the the whole online of food um, mm-hmm. that has gotten a really, really good push during. Right. Uh, the and pandemic. you couldn't even del- deliver stuff uh, fast enough to homes, right? Or yes, and as uh, I mean, I think that is a that's an interesting part to really be aware of. Uh, is it's not just scaling your servers for your website. You also yeah. need to be able to drive the truck out to the <laughs> exactly. to the homes. Exactly. 
Uh, the whole value chain needs to then shift to another fundamental core model. Yeah. But and how much, of course, but because this is interesting that there's this timing. We want to do things. We want to push the envelope, but yep. we kind of need to have the market window together with the customer. So then when the customer is not willing to change their behaviors, it doesn't happen. But then we have triggers like Corona, and now we have changed patterns and we have found new patterns that yep. probably won't go back. I have a good example. But, but ask him, I mean, do you think we will come back to the traditional behavior and go into the stores at the same way as we did before Corona? Or will it actually continue to have some kind of persistent change? Uh, it will definitely be a persistent change. I mean, the whole online online uh, gaining market share. Yeah. That I'm I'm 100% confident in. Mm. I don't see the online going down now that we're starting to open up the... the yeah. Uh, the the society I I don't I really don't think that will happen now because people have under have started to really get that sense of well it it's quite to easy to just it's buy quite online. convenient right yeah exactly and I just go there and pick it up so I I didn't get it first but now when I've done it five times wow this is quite nice yeah so so I think that um, so I think it it will be a persistent change what is what I think will be very interesting to understand. Uh, that I, I'm not myself sure where it will head is how what do you buy online versus what do you buy in the store. Right. Mm-hmm. That part is going to be very interesting to see to follow. How does the mm-hmm. uh, how do the consumers change their behavior now that they're starting to work uh, and so on? Do you think you will have you know Amazon has what they call predictive shopping, basically saying they will deliver stuff to your door even though you haven't ordered it. Just because you're out of fruits, out of toilet paper, out of whatever, they know that you normally buy this X times per month, so they simply deliver it, and you have the freedom to freely return it. But as long as they can predict it to a certain threshold, like 60% of the time, they still make money by simply sending it to you automatically. Do you think that will happen for you at some point? I actually haven't thought about it. Uh, it. It is an interesting topic. Uh, I myself would like to have, like, uh, how would you put it, a subscription on my gray shopping. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the things the I gray shopping, like. the, the gray shopping proactive, I don't think it's so far away. I really don't think it's that far away. No, no, I mean. As long as it's a little bit like, we kind of know that you are really keen for this to the right price. We think we have the right price for you right now. Keep it or send it back. I think that would work. Yeah, I, I, personally, I, definitely. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, personalized pricing? Saying that a certain person, because of whatever kind of demographics or whatnot or behavior, they get a different price online when they buy stuff. That that is an interesting topic. I haven't really mm-hmm. thought about it. I mean, you, you kind of get that from. Um, uh, I mean, looking at banks and insurance and so on, there it's more mainstream. Yeah. It is quite mainstream, uh, especially on the insurance side. I mean, yeah. they do a risk. You're, you're, you're worth yeah the risk assessment. You're, you're you're worth this much, and then you get this premium. Mm. Uh, when it comes to groceries and things like that, it's. But don't they have it already? 
So if you are if you are a loyal customer, don't you have like a points that you collect? Yeah, yeah points and kickback, which is a little bit like yeah. you get rewarded for being loyal. And, yeah. and, and if you have like a old uh, like nick next to expiry date food, don't you change the pricing as well? Yes, but not but depending not on who you are as yeah, a customer. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's uh, it's. We are almost there, just basically tweak a little bit. Tweak a little bit. The reason I ask it, you know, I remember this is like six, seven years well, ago. I, I went to. Well, another, so if the person is buying in, uh, in store or online, is it a different uh, price? Mm-hmm. Uh, depends on the store, I would say. Yeah, so we are getting there. It just needs to be systemized correctly, right? Uh, yes, but but you also need to set the expectation around it for the customer because that, that needs to be extremely, it needs to be very clear for the customer that this is happening because if, uh, I mean, uh, this is one of the one of the parts where you need to be you need to really inform your customers. We are doing yes, this. This is how it will be affected. Otherwise, it will be a lot of. Yeah, I think it can be a big backlash. I, I just want to, do, to share a small anecdote. And I went to this kind of uh, recommender system conference six, seven years ago, oh, seven eight years ago, long time ago. I'm too old. Anyway, um, there there was this PhD student, and he was presenting his awesome PhD thesis about uh, personalized pricing. And how you can optimize the shop by, you know, having, you know, this person is able to pay this much and this one, not so much. Uh, and by finding the right price, you can optimize the total revenues so much. And he was so proud of it. And then um, after his presentation, a senior data scientist from Amazon stood up and he said, um, this is completely useless. We would never, ever use this in Amazon. And he said, basically, the, the reason for that was that uh, the the number one metric for them is the user experience, and if anyone thinks that I have to pay more for a milk cart than I than Henry Cass, I will be angry. You know why? Why do I have to pay more? It's a discrimination, more or less, <laughs> and it's a very sensitive topic. I think unless yeah. you have a good motivation for why someone should pay more than the other person in some yeah. way, right? And just getting that feeling that I might be paying yeah. more than someone else. I mean, yeah. A uh, very sensitive topic, but uh, who knows what the future has in store, so to speak. Are we ready for a new topic? Yeah, I think so. I think we are. Um, we we were discussing before we started here. Um, you were mentioning a topic um, that I want you to elaborate on. You 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 call it like the the full spectra to understand the full spectra, and you know how do you how do you holistically build a machinery that all the pieces fits together. So that was a bad framing. Why, why don't you frame your pet peeve? Yeah, so my, my, uh, yeah, my pet peeve, uh, if you will, is around something I call like an analytical framework, where uh, which does not only contain the code frameworks you need to do data ingestion, data transformation, uh, or machine learning models and so on, but rather having that whole picture. What are the things you need to put in place? If you do everything, uh, you're going to get like a grid of things you need to put in place with everything from top where you have your business strategy, your data strategy, your analytics strategy. You have how you work with data products, how you create them, how you decommission them, how you evolve them how you organize to um, things around data governance. How do you work with that? How do you work with information ownership, data protection, uh, data protection tech, uh, uh, and so on? 
down to data platforms um, and, and other analytical platforms, as well as analytical processes. How do you work with self, uh, self-service? Uh, how do you work with machine learning? How do you run those use cases? And having that kind of framework that, that is end-to-end where you can pick pieces and, and have that whole holistic viewpoint. Because if you get the full map and say, this is, these are the things you should look at from the start, and, and then being able to pick out the pieces and being able to actually apply that and, and start working with that, that, that is something that I rarely see. And it's something that uh, I see a lot of pieces of that puzzle from different companies, from different vendors and so on. But I would like to see more of that full full scale analytical so, framework. So, but, but let's, you're actually talking about my pet peeve. It's interesting. And it's a really interesting topic, but it's also a really difficult topic because typically when you do something holistically, well, McKinsey is doing that and it doesn't really fly because it's so high fly, so you can't really pick it apart. So, so let, let's pick apart the problem that you are mm-hmm. thinking about that you are solving with this. How do you see, you know, why do you need that? What, how would that help you? What, so, why is this something you think you need? So I think that um, when you don't have the whole view, uh, mm. you're, you're going to run, everything becomes an investigation. Yeah. And uh, in some cases, this is perfectly fine. I mean, uh, especially if you're starting out small and trying to do things, you, you're probably just going to need a very small thing. But if you aren't aware of, for instance, the all of the GDPR measures you need to take, and those pop up late, and you try to add them from, I mean, as an duct tape on, on it afterwards, it's going to be extremely hard. It's not going to work well. Whereas if you've taken that into account from the start and have really identified your customer information, you know what you do with it. Uh, and that can be as easy as documenting it, documenting it in, in, on a wiki. But, but just having that when you think about when you, when you work with it. So you know that I need to be able to sort out right to be forgotten. I need to be able to uh, run data retention and so on. When I start out, it becomes so much easier to just build things the right way. Anders, I know you did a, you did a topic similar in AI Sweden where you did the map. Uh, you, you, oh, yeah. uh, where you, what, what was your idea with do, do, doing the map? Please explain what we are talking about and how it relates, if it relates to this topic. Because I think it yeah, does I mean, in some it ways. It is connected partly, but it's it's trying to have the more holistic view of what, what it really means to, to try to have a successful like AI use case that has some kind of business value. And so many people focus so much on the data itself or the model itself or the code itself, itself but there is so much more uh, than just having that. Um, there can be legal issues, uh, as, as you mentioned, and there can be, you know, how do you really productionize it properly, but not the least, you know, how do you really transform the mindset of the business as well and how you build knowledge of the people to be able to use it or understand the value of it. And trying to have this kind of bigger holistic view is something I think very few companies and people do understand. So I really like what you say about the frame, framework. The, the question or the problem that I see is really, how do you communicate that? How, how do you get people to understand that? Even if you have it in your head, potentially you can write it down in a wiki, but I 
who will actually read that? I mean, not everyone would read the wiki. And uh, that is a hard question for me. Do, do you have any thoughts about, you know, if you have designed the perfect framework, how do you get that into the heads of the other people? And I think that uh, different people are going to read different parts of that framework. Mm. Uh, and what I think is, but it is an extremely uh, important topic, just having that whole communication part. Mm. Because uh, you can, as you say, you can write down the perfect framework. If yeah. no one reads it, um, then it's worthless. Mm. If no one understands it, it's also worthless. Right. So you really need to think about how do I communicate, uh, who do I communicate to, and what level do you need to communicate on? And I think it it is so worth the time just taking that extra day to make some easy either presentations. Uh, I recently did an internal film of a few minutes just saying what is a data platform what is data management what is a visualization environment Mm. doing those kind of things uh, where it becomes easily accessible Mm. um, it's really worth it because it it makes it just so much easier to communicate and i think that the the whole communication side of it um, is not to be underestimated you need to spend a lot of time there I'm biting my tongue now, Anders. You always say you're biting your tongue. Yes. Because you're sitting talking about what I have on my hat. <laughs> yeah. What do you have on your hat for people uh, that don't see it? So I have I have a hat which says airplane that I'm wearing every time in this uh, podcast. And what the hell is this airplane? All right. And very simply put, we are trying to crowdsource and open source uh, peer-to-peer to solve that topic. Because we think it's that big, so we need to lay a puzzle together. And we, the way we have talked about this problem is extremely similar to what you have said, the same. But we, are, but we are adding another angle to it that one part of the problem is that we have people with different roles. If you're a business solution owner, the business guys, they define how they understand a use case or what they need to do in their way. And then you go to the data scientists who have their understanding for a use case lifecycle, data engineer, something else, software engineer, something else. And we simply miss this framework or, or common lingo, how we can get this faster. And, and the, what we have done very, very concretely is very similar to a little bit what you have done, but we have put the, the, the core quanta around the use case lifecycle and then looked at the, the core fundamental roles to put AI in production, the data engineer, the data scientist, and stuff like this. And then basically trying to understand, you know, what are we doing in the, in the ideation phase? What are we doing exactly like, oops, we shouldn't have the GDPR topic pop up in the ramp up stage, you come early. So basically, this is a humongous puzzle to put together, right? But uh, some crazy people are trying to get it done. And basically, we have some crazy universities that are trying to work on this topic from, you know, so we have then within the framework uh, defined, you know, who is the airplane and navigator, you know, stuff like this, who's understanding the whole thing. And then so, so I'm not biting my tongue anymore. That's awesome. (laughs) But I think this is really important problem going, I mean, like my take, we have an orchestration problem to take data and AI into production. The number one problem is orchestration. That's why we don't have speed. Let me, you know, even though I've also done similar things, say that, you know, perhaps we can take another approach and it would be fun to hear what you think about this, Olof. But one thing we did in AI agenda for Sweden was that 
you know, it's impossible to really describe every aspect of how you build an AI-enabled system. And, and to try to have a single overview of everything that everyone needs to understand, you know, and everyone can't understand everything. Nope. It's not possible. Nope. So what do you do? So I think a potential other solution to it could be to instead say, forget that. What I instead do is I have a library of use cases. And I say, here we built a system or a use case that handled um, the logistics of milk uh, cart, uh, carts to, to, to an ICA store. And uh, this is what we did. These are the people that did it. And we can give a quick overview, but very, very brief. And the only thing that if someone recognizes and say, I have a similar use case, what they should do is really contact these people or read more information about that. Um, because usually the devil's in the details. And it's usually if you just hear the very brief overview of something, it always sounds nice. But if you don't have the details, you usually fail if you try to copy it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the details are very important. And I think also when we do, uh, and I think, I mean, the whole library part is extremely interesting because I think that's one of the part that a lot of people don't know uh, what can be done. Or what exactly you can the, be inspired then to the whole idea yeah. of how to get started. I don't even know what my problem could be or inspired. Yeah, I mean, cool. Uh, the moving to another topic there because you know time is flying <laughs> yeah, away. Time is flying. And and I think this is actually one of your favorite topics as well. So we're speaking about number of use cases, but how do you truly find a good use case to work with, and how do you find a use case that actually do provide business value in some way? Let's say you have ten different use cases you have identified in some way. What's the, how do you select which one to start with? Or do you start with many of them? Or what's your thinking there? How do you select which one or, or I, uh, how, yeah, which ones I to start with? So, I, I mean, there, there's a quite an easy and a traditional way of looking at it. And it's kind of looking at the business value versus feasibility matrix. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that it has been used a lot of times in so many different areas, but it, it, I mean, it, it's extremely it relevant here as well. It's just what goes into that, um, into the feasibility, for instance, uh, that, that changes. When it comes to the, I mean, the business value, it's gonna be hard to predict your value out of an analytics case or a machine learning case uh, normally. Before you just skip over the whole business value versus feasibility, if you were to still try to you know, estimate that for a use case, how do you really go about doing that? How do you know the business value of a use case before you have it? Or you know, how do you actually practically do it if you were um, to sit down? One part is just estimating it. The no yeah. the, another is measuring it. And I, I think that the, the whole A-B testing is, is an area to really adopt and, and, is, and is very important. Um, but if you were to estimate it, it's, you have to look at the business problem. What mm. is it that we're trying to solve? Is it, and, and then it can't just be on the, we want higher customer loyalty. Mm. I mean, you need to look at, okay, what are we trying to solve in this case? Are we trying to, to um, get the trucks uh, to drive a shorter route to the stores, for instance. And so kind of the traveling salesman problem. Exactly. And then... Then we need a quantum computer to do that. Sorry, no, uh, continue. Uh, and then you, you can start looking, okay, how much do we spend today? So basically how much is the whole 
the whole mass that you can optimize. It's never going to be zero, but how much is the whole the whole mass? And then try to look at um, doing some form of estimate. Normally, uh, being an estimate, you, but you can even do even it manually, more, but you uh, could also do a POC and actually try to yeah. dump data in, uh, dump data in, try to create a model uh, but, but speaking very, very practically about this, because you know business value, some people are good at estimating that. Mm-hmm. Some people may not be good at estimating feasibility, for example, especially yeah. if it's a bit more complicated kind of AI use case that business people may not have any clue if, if they think is feasible or not. They they think in many cases, I would say that AI is some kind of magic box, so just put some data into it and yeah. it will work, right? And I, so. yeah, and, and I think that's where just I mean, in order to come up with, say, a one slider where yeah. you describe a particular use case with benefits, with with cost and with feasibility and so on, uh, in order to get there, you need to actually work together and you need to have that whole discussion with the, it cannot be the business coming up with everything. It cannot be the data science team. No. So you really need to work together. You need to. Uh, have that whole ideation process and work through what are we actually going to do on a high level, of course. But it, it's not just, oh, logistic The business costs cannot do it on their 5%. own. And the uh, data scientist or the AI person cannot do it their own. They need to have a common approach on how they ideate, design yes. thinking, methodology, whatever. I think Common or should it be combined? Now, what I mean with what I mean with this, we all uh, this is T shaped or something like this. That you 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 have your discipline where you are strong in, but we need to come together to understand. We have a fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is how can we reduce truck uh, truck uh, you know traveling salesmen. I mean, it needs to start somewhere with a very concrete understanding of a problem. I, I think if to say as you said, oh, we be, we want better customer loyalty. It's not concrete enough. Okay, what is it exactly that you're trying to fix as a problem? Number one, get that sharp. But then you need to have those people with the different disciplines in the same room to to co-create on on how that could work. And then I'm, that's what I think is maybe combined is a better word because we need to have a methodology to come up with it together. But it's not that we, are, we, we come there with different skills that extrapolate on each other in some ways. I, I think this... How you do that is quite important. I mean, uh, what do you think about this? Because some people claim that you know the only type of use cases you should, should focus on is what the business think it sh- needs to have. But the problem potentially with that is it's hard for business people to understand what technology can do. So yes. if you just do what the business potentially people are thinking, you could uh, throw a, a Henry Ford quote on this and say, you know, if you just want to have a faster horse, we would just have a faster horse and not yeah. a car. Yeah. How, how do we avoid that kind of incremental development problem where you just, you know, continue working as you do um, and, and missing out potentially on some big transformation that you can make? And uh, I think, I mean, I think it's extremely important to not, because the business are great at doing their, the business yeah. they are doing. Um, but when you bring business and tech together, that is where you can really find uh, find the, the the sweet spots where where you should spend your your time and money. I fully agree with that. And 
And it comes from two parts. Uh, one is that business needs to start learning more tech, but they all, above all, they need to start wanting to work together with tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that whole wanting to work with each other is it's really key. the key in, in all of it. At the same time, I think that the tech side should drive more and come up with more suggestions and and talk to the business and say, maybe we can do this and this and this. And that requires them to take an interest in the in business. The business. Oh. And, and, and understanding what the business Spotting. actually needs. Uh, and so and that, that's kind of the culture shift you need, you need to, to get to. The, the second part is just creating that arena where they can work together, creating ideation forums, uh, having space for doing business innovation um, and so on. Uh, but, but I think the whole having that whole use case forum where you have uh, a bis- business over here deciding what to do and then that gets to some uh, organization that writes one sliders that goes to someone that should deliver it. It will never work. It will never it work. It will never work. But I think here, I want a joke to say here. We want that business arena, but the problem is now we get to this business arena and let's say we have a doctor's type problem then we can make a joke out of it. Here we have an arena where one guy speaks Python and the other guy speaks Latin, you know, and they don't understand each other. So this is where sort of the common framework, which is down to lingo and how we go about this. So we can be trained in, in how the arena works. I bring my Latin, I, I bring my Python and we talk English together. Yep. And we have a language of English, so we can have this arena to work. Then you can code in Latin and I can sell in, you know, I can be a doctor in, you know. Do you see what I mean, right? Yeah. So, so this linguistical problem of translating from business to analytics and data is huge, right? So the arena has to have a ling- lingo with it, I yeah. think. Something like this. As it is yeah. hard yeah. stuff. Good stuff. Should we? We should move topic? on. Yeah. Do we want, we sh- maybe we. Time is flying. Yeah. Do you want to take a topic? I want to go a little bit more philosophical. Okay. One, one small, <laughs> very easy topic yeah. just to answer then. Uh, no. But anyway, uh, to build teams and ah, and to good. have the proper skills in a team, and and you have said a number of different teams. It can yeah. be the the line organization or the main team or the virtual <laughs> teams. Perhaps we should focus on the virtual teams for now. And also from a recruiting point of view, you know, how, what type of people should you recruit to have the, the optimal kind of mix or yeah, set of skills in a virtual team? What's your thinking there? So, uh, I mean, for me, it's, um, uh, let's disregard whether or not it's a virtual team or, or an organizational team and so on. What you need to look at, what do you need to perform? To, to deliver an end-to-end use case. Mm. First of all, you need to have uh, business people in there. You need to have that the, the people that are going to develop the, the actual business. Uh, so you need those business experts in there. You need to have um, the analytics people in there. Um, depending on what you want to achieve, you need data scientists, analysts, dashboard creators, um, 
you need people to make sure that the data is where it should be in the right manner. So you need data engineers. And no, very often you need ML engineers as well uh, to really support the data scientists and make everything work, work together. Um, you need some form of platform skills uh, in the team. Uh, if you have that centralized or in the actual team or not, that's uh, depending on your organization, but you need that skill in there to add new services, to make things um, go smoother. Uh, then you need someone that knows the data, knows what is um, where where does the data come from, yeah, how is model, it defined, how is it modeled, blah blah blah. Yeah, how is it modeled? How is it characterized? Do what what uh, what's what the quality, quality? <laughs> exactly? <laughs> Uh, and so on, and also um, someone that knows the data governance around it. So uh, knows the things, is this sensitive data, is this not sensitive? Um, what kind of protection do we need to put on the data? And so on. And Okay, so, so I'm trying to finish this up. So we have some time for, yeah. for philosophical topics as well. But you mentioned at least one dimension to think of when, you know, constructing or, or creating team, but, and that could be skills, you know, what type mm. of skills should you have, but it can be many other dimensions. So it could be like level of seniority. It could be gender. It could be age, etc. Do you have any thoughts about that? You know, what's the proper mix of people in terms of, uh, seniority, age, gender, etc. I think having a fully junior team is going to be hard. Yeah. Um, they will need direction. Uh, I think it's good to have a mix of senior and junior people. Do you have um, a favorite like ratio between a senior person and a junior people? Uh, maybe one to two, something like that. Oh, that's high. Uh, <laughs> depends on your level of seniority as well, I would yeah. say. And your level of juniority. Yeah. Um, so, um, with that said, um, I think that, uh, I mean, just counting up the skills means that you're not going to have 10 data engineers in the team, mm. uh, which means that if you're going to have a mix, you need to have that, that ratio can't be too, I mean, it can't be one to 10 because then yeah. the, the, the team all of a sudden is huge. Uh, in some sense, it can be enough to have a senior data scientist working with junior data engineers as long as they know uh, more on the technical side, they can that those kind of paths all often go together in in some sense. Um, when it comes to to diversity, I think that diverse teams nor can be it can be easy to put uh, together a very uh, uh, a team where everyone is the same, uh, and it's going to be great for like a week. But uh, I think that the long term. Uh, efficiency of that team is not going to be as good uh, if as if you create a diverse team mm -hmm. yeah. and i think it's a, it, i think you can really achieve more with diverse teams than you do with teams where everyone is 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 the same because you're going to have different viewpoints you're going to have different experiences you're, you're going to be able to take uh, things a lot further and you may end up clashing in the start and you have to do that whole group level um, 
development over time. But uh, in the end, when you come out the other side, uh, it's going to be so much better if you have a, a diverse team. Mm. I think we could speak forever about this, but perhaps you should uh, move into the more philosophical. Do you want well, to take yeah, it? it, it it's a philosophical question or, or like a macro question. Uh, it, it can be both, but the entry point is this. Uh, on Data Innovation Summit uh, 2021 on uh, 14th and 15th October here in Stockholm, the theme is AI transformation. So I would like to explore what is AI transformation uh, from the highest macro perspective starting there. You know, what does it mean to society and almost philosophically, what is AI transformation? What do we mean with that? What is our take on this if we start big? And I mean, <laughs> it's of course an extremely exciting topic, yes. I would say. Um, for me, it, it is bringing AI into everyday life and making everyday life easier with the use of uh, machine learning and, and, and AI. Uh, depending on how far we want to take the whole AI topic, I mean, we, we can increase productivity without tearing down people's health, if I put it like that. Um, and I think that, that should be the aim of, of AI and machine learning, is to make every day a bit easier for everyone. Uh, so better for the, for the, for the, the public good, if I, if I put it like that. And... Um, but in order to get there, we need to start uh, getting it into everyday life because when we do that, people will start to trust it. They will understand, they will not see it as a vague uh, threat on the horizon and start seeing it as, oh, it's this easier shopping experience at the Decathlon. But I, I want to explore why we call it a transformation or if it's some sort of paradigm shift or a pivot. And, and, and let me frame my thinking a little bit like this, that we are coming from an industrial era. We have, we have cha been chasing efficiencies and automation of muscle power, so to speak. And now we're moving into some sort of society where we have a data and AI first approach. And all of a sudden we have a few tech giants who actually they are working on a different macro life cycle. Uh, if you if you know the term S curve, or you know the, how you draw up the curve. I mean, like the 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 old uh, we are proud analog people on, on on the maturity of one curve, and here we have uh, the real tech giants, the most valuable companies in the world. There are even before the pioneering station into the growth stage of another curve. So they are literally moving. Uh, with a data and AI first mindset. And, and I think we are now talking about the fundamental shift in how we organize, how we structure things. Uh, first principles ideas on everything. We are all data companies, all AI companies. I mean, like, yeah. for me, this is, I don't know, transformation is too light. It's a pivot of, of your fundamental uh, approach to or operations, organization, business. And that I very much agree with. I think that all companies are, will have to be data and AI companies or they will probably go extinct. Do we think that? I mean, like, because I am just following the trajectory and I, don't, I think it's unavoidable. I, I think it depends on what level we're talking. Uh, I don't think the, uh, 
the the local uh, pizza bakery is going to be extinct if they don't put AI in their uh, no, I mean, like, production. Don't be too sure about it. I, no, it's a time uh, horizon thing, maybe. I actually had a recent um, discussion about that, and someone said, you know, yeah, sure, the tech companies and Spotify, etc., they need AI, but what about the hairdresser? You know, they couldn't care less less about digital transformation or AI-driven, you know, companies. And someone said, "Are you sure?" And they started to rank up like ten different use cases, and, and mm. for a hairdresser, saying, "If you don't do this." Someone else will do that, and and you will be left behind. I think you know may not be that obvious, but it can su- be surprisingly impactful. I think even for everyday kind of roles, be- because we we are talking now like we need to find this arena. You know, we were joking uh, Latin versus Python, and then we need to talk English. My philosophical view on this is that all companies. None will be talking Python. None will be talking English. We will all live in the middle of the Venn diagram. Our core business will happen in the middle of the Venn diagram between whatever domain we're in and data and AI. So this mm-hmm. whole sort of paradigm of IT supply and IT demand will disappear. This is my take on if 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 I just follow the trajectory. I don't think people have to think about it. It's just that AI will be a natural component of everything you do. It's yeah. just you don't has you know has to be an expert in it in any way. It's just that you know when you put your business online, of course there will be a recommender system in place, and of course you will have some kind of optimization in how you get your products in place. But you don't build it yourself. It's just that it's a natural component of every part of your business. And what does that mean for the companies who are not I mean like what what is the transition that will happen for all businesses to be part of that you know to be competitive. I mean like they need then I guess they need to I, mean, I think actually you phrase it really well Olaf. It simply will make it easier for everyone. They don't have to do all the horrible boring manual steps that they otherwise have to do. And it simply works and and it simply you know you do what you you know should do and and the rest is automated and optimized for you and recommended for you or completely automated in some way i think you know what you actually said and the mission of ika i think is surprisingly apt in that way you should make it simpler for people yeah and i think i mean just adopting that kind of mindset as a yeah. company that and realizing the fact that ai will be in the middle of everything we do um doesn't mean that everyone needs to be Spotify no. or Amazon and needs to have a a an army of data engineers and data scientists, mm. but rather that they use the platforms out there. I mean, if yes. we take the pizza place, I mean, most of them today have a website where you can order stuff. A lot of them actually deliver home using other partners. Services. Exactly. So, so uh, which are then... Uh, AI driven to optimize logistics and so on. So I think um, not every company needs to be a tech building company, Uh, but all companies need to be tech companies. So all companies will need to be tech savvy to understand what they need and how to use it. Or even, you know, it could actually be easier. I'm not, should I go there? Yeah, Yeah, go there. Please go there. I mean, if my mom, for example, she's a nurse or she's retired right now, but still, you know, she was really, she hated the digitalization of of journal systems, you know, Mm. because before they could simply write with pen and paper on on some kind of piece, yeah, the journal, and that was it. 
Then she had to move into these horrible digital systems and these kind of forms, and then they were so immature, and you couldn't change anything, and there were bugs in them, and you so had to hard. write it twice or four times the same shit. <laughs> exactly, and and that was uh, very annoying. And she hated digitalization. I think you know what will happen. And I think a lot of people have a confusion here, thinking that AI will increase the level of difficulty it will be with working with machines, but that will be the exact opposite, I think. Yes, I think so. It will be just easier to work together with machines. If it is a journal system or a car, it doesn't really matter. You can simply speak to them, or you can simply, they know what you want in advance, so they simply recommend you and, and ignore all the annoying stuff. And it will simply make it easier, once again, right, to do stuff. Yep. And and right. used to to finish off this topic now, uh, and the next question, the companies who are not sort of with a proud analog history, I think EK is a really great example of a very, very good company. How much do we need to chase it or will it just happen? I mean, like uh, uh, we, we've been talking about the AI divide in terms of some, some few tech giants really moving ahead of the game. They're on a different curve, as we said. And I feel scared anytime I feel a central of power on anything where very, very few is doing something no one else can do. So I kind of is pushing the hypothesis that we should all, the normal companies should definitely chase it hard, not maybe more taking than they, you know, should expect, but they, I'm just scared if we are not all chasing it right now. How, how do we, or should we just wait for it? It will be easier. Amazon will do it for us. And to be fair, I think a lot of companies out there are chasing it. I think so too. And uh, but I think it, rightly so. I think that we a lot of it takes time and effort, and, yes. and nothing takes more effort than change. Ah, good one. Uh, so you need when you decide to change, that actually takes effort. It's not going to happen. Um, a company doesn't become data-driven because you build a few use cases. No. It becomes data-driven when you start learning about it and start learning about data and start learning and, and bringing that whole into your company culture. And, and with that said, yes, I think you need to do it as an active effort as a company. And, but, but, and I think the core, my core question is, do we all need to have it like a pervasive idea that this is so important, it is top of the agenda, or can we use to ride along and, you know, use the services that come out? I, I, I am kind of in the, in the corner that thinks we need to chase it and we need to make it pervasive in our normal analog companies simply to put the balance to some few that is doing it today. But I don't know, what do we think? I think that it's... It's worth chasing. Um, I mean, it depends on how far you pull it. I mean, you still need to have the, uh, you still need to have that whole, why are we here? Mm. What's our purpose as a company? Is our, um, is our purpose to sell as much food as possible or, or is it to make our customers' lives a little bit easier? And together with that, I think that you need to understand that in our customers' lives are being made easier and easier and easier by the tech giants, which means that in order to keep up, we need to run. I, actually, I just said, damn it, IKEA has the most AI-ready payoff. Make life easier. 
mission? No, but like the mission is sort of geared to, we need to do AI to make things easier. I mean, like if we talk about AI to simplify, make things easier and make more, more convenient recommendations and all that, uh, it's an, it, if, if you really dig down what makes things easier, it's a lot of data in there. If I were to be a bit um, argumentative here, yeah. then, then potentially easier is not always good. Uh, <laughs> I think sometimes you need some kind of challenge, etc. The easiest way would be, you know, just lie in the bed and, you know, everything is fixed for you. That would not be in happy life. I think if we make the life happier, I think that could be a yep. potentially better slogan. I don't know. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> I, I will do a quick one on one of our sort of favorite philosoph philosophical topics. Mm. And, and it's to take a stab at uh, the understanding of uh, artificial general intelligence and singularity. And uh, yeah, do you have any ideas or thinking or thoughts? Or have you ever reflected on what happens when this goes the whole way, so to speak? So I've, um, I've had some, of course, you, uh, some reflections on my own. I don't, it's not something I uh, lie sleepless at night <laughs> over. Uh, I mean, it's really, really interesting, right? Uh, where when i mean now programs writing programs where does it all end how far can we really uh, really take that um it's worth being careful about i would mm -hmm. say uh, and really setting the right uh, boundaries for it or well, perhaps not boundaries but as much as direction mm. so it's a good word so with that said um i think that a lot of what we are doing today will we will not be doing in the end. I mean, the way the way we go about life, you mean, or the chores we have and the tasks we do. Definitely a, a lot of the work tasks we do mm. today. I don't think we're going to do that in a hundred years. No. And I'm not sure a hundred years is the right time span considering the speed that everything is picking up. Um, but without being that kind of thinking, um, on a what will happen in 10 years, but will, what will happen long term, then I think um, the majority of what we do in our professional lives today, we're not going to be doing. Um, I mean, building systems, for instance. I mean, be, having people that are sitting and coding when we can have, we can give an instruction we to can someone. We can speak English to the machines rather than speaking exactly. Python. Exactly. Have you seen uh, the OpenAI's codex? You, know, you can just tell it to write the program and it writes it for you. Um, yeah. Could be the future. Um, I think it will take some time, but still, um, it's an interesting one. Right. But if you were to just you know differentiate like three different terms here, uh, you spoke about um, singularity, you spoke about AGI, artificial general intelligence, and you can also speak about human level intelligence. And, and just to give at least my first view of that, because I think they are three different things. Yep. So human level intelligence means basically that uh, AI has uh, catched up with um, what the human type of brain can do. Artificial general, intelli general intelligence is much, much more than that. You know, if you think about the human brain and humans are incredibly stupid, you can't even like multiply two large integers or you can't even you know, remember more than two, three things at a time in your head. But the machine can do so much more. So it can be easily 
hypothesize that you know AGI can be extremely much more like super intelligent level than humans ever could. And then you have singularity, which is uh, basically a point in time where you lose control, uh, where I don't want to say the term matrix, but but at some point there will be something that causes a problem that we can't stop. So I was actually asking, singularity, does that mean when we lose control or what does it mean when the... Uh, when they think for themselves or, you know, they, we, we can't, if, if someone said it like when you can't push the button and turn it yeah. off, is, is that the definition we're talking about for singularity? It's my view, at least. Uh, I'm not sure if the definition. Nah, of it, I think, but. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so what's your view on singularity? Because I, I've tried to, exp- someone asked me to explain this in, in a pod recently yeah. and I, shit, I, I try yeah. uh, And I was like, oh, I'm just going to kill me now because I'm <laughs> fluffing it. I don't know. But I, I explained it more like, when they w- when we reach the point that they think for themselves but that is that is uh, i think i mean but it's too light right you don't like that like it i think the singularity I, is I, I, uh, when, I, I, when we reach the point where we cannot no longer understand for me it's more when we can't understand it anymore i mean it's one thing to lose control but we can lose control over the internet today. But, 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 but when we have had this conversation here it's been like you can't really turn it off anymore it has taken a life on its yeah. own. Just to give a concrete example then, I mean, uh, singularity can happen in a very narrow way. It can be that someone actually builds a drone that is autonomous and they have a single idiotic mission, which is kill as many humans as possible. And they go rogue, do that. You have lost control and you can't control it even more. And, and potentially they, they forgot to build in a, a safe or some kind of, of safe hack so fail you can safe. turn it off. Oh. Yeah, fail safe, oh. thank you. Or it can be something that go rogue on, on the stock market or something and, and you can't turn it off. And, and that can actually happen very, very quickly. But could you, yeah. could you so, use the word singularity, narrow singularity? I don't think so. I think uh, so. Did you invent it right now, Anders? Narrow singularity. Mm, I think you did. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I was thinking about narrow consciousness uh, and, and I just extrapolated from yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw what you did. Mm. But yeah, so basically losing control in that sense is what I meant. And, and you know, you can think, you know, Matrix or, or the Terminator as well. And, and Terminator having machines. You know, robotics, of course, is very, very far behind and probably 50 at least years off. But you can go rogue without having robotics. You can go rogue with just software. And that can happen really, really quickly. But, but you put some sort of out of control yeah. in the t- term definition of singularity. Yeah. That's what and, you and are. Then, that's yes, what and you then are it can pushing. be a narrow and general one. If a general happens, it basically means they, they can, you know. I need to read all definition of singularity and 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 see if I can. But I don't <laughs> think I I do it in the same way as Wikipedia or someone no, does it. I don't think you do. Uh, but uh, yeah, at some point, you know, if they're completely independent of humans and can continue to work, that would be the general type of singularity. But yeah, that's, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. And can continue to evolve yeah, without exactly. our yeah, completely exactly. independent of us. Yeah. This is it. But but we've had a little bit more, I, I would there, say, I doomsday Yeah, I think there are narrow singularities, and I think there is a general one. And I think you just invented something that we haven't heard before, and I love yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think... You, uh, Olof, yeah. you're not scared about the singularity then, or...? Um, no, not really. Mm-hmm. Good. Do you have a number? time when when, when the we have this, this, will this, happen yeah we have a bet <laughs> oh you have a, i'm uh, joking no, we don't have yeah. a bet 
Uh, well, it depends on how you define it. Um, but somewhere here, somewhere what we talked about right now, I guess. Yeah, kind of losing control when we stop understanding and it starts to evolve by itself and we yes. can't really stop that evolution. Mm. 2050. This close, what was the curse file number? 29. Uh, that's 2029. But uh, 2050 is interesting because that's the RoboCup uh, definition of when the human champions in soccer will beat the robotics champion in soccer. And that means that both the AI, the software part, and the robotics has been, you know, improved so much it actually can overtake a human. So that's actually their definition. Yeah, yeah vice versa. The vice robotics versa. team the robotics beats the humans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Did I say vice versa? Yeah, yeah, oh. okay. oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, 2050, yeah. I, uh, uh, if you if you include robotics, I would agree. If you or uh, exclude robotics, I would say it happens much faster. Yeah, you, and, you, and I, think, I think I mean losing control in s narrow areas that yeah. will happen a lot faster. Yeah, that 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 I'm I'm positive about. And I mean, uh, as long as we add the the whole intelligence part about it, is that we lose control over an intelligence that has a narrow band of control. Yeah, that, that that's a lot uh, sooner. Losing control over a machine learning algorithm so that it destroys something, uh, mm -hmm. that probably happened yesterday. Mm, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Awesome. Very good. I think, uh, yeah, we, we, are, we, are, we, have, we are running into the last type of questions. And uh, what is next in your life? What is, what is on the agenda next? For you, Ooh, um, I mean, aside from uh, just the normal kind of life with uh, three kids, one dog, and uh, uh, I think that what is next for me when it comes to it's of course the Data Innovation Summit coming up in a couple of weeks, yeah. um, and I am uh, I'm working on the the kind of analytic framework and, and so on. So we need to talk after work. Yeah, and that is something that I'm I'm personally working uh, on. And then I mean, as a company, we're doing so many things right now, and the whole part of that whole data driven transformation. Anything is, we will see as consumers around uh, the corner that you can give us a small scoop, use the, use the hint. Oh, now I have to think about the use. I mean. A lot of our use cases you will as a consumer see as incremental things, yes, not, 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 not a huge things. We do have some unmanned stores uh, mm -hmm. or already today. You will probably see improvement in, in that area, I would say. Unmanned stores, improvement in that area sounds very cool. Last question. Do you have anyone you would like to recommend to join this podcast? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have sev several people, it depends on the area. I have, um, my colleague, Ola Ottosson, uh, ah, Ola, yes, he, he's a good one, uh, to have on there. I have a friend that I've worked on and off with over the years, Niklas Edebay, when we talk about scaling organizations and teams. Where is he now? Uh, Hohem. Ah, he's Hohem, yeah, yeah, right. Plus. Good ideas. Very good. So I think uh, thank you very much for 
we had the chance to interrogate you at some point. Yeah, it felt like for, sorry for, for that. having me. I mean, the, these <laughs> are my so favorite exciting. topics. We all want to understand how do they do it? How do they do it? You know. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So with that, I think. Um, Thank you very much, Olof, and uh, let's start the after after work. That's okay. what happens now. Take care. Thank, awesome. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for having bye me. Bye. Thank you.